0: My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our program will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Bill Lewis onto today's program. Uh, Bill is a published author, professional speaker, coach and advisor to boards, founders, CEOs and leaders. And he's also currently the chairman of CXY, whose founder Kate Cooper-Fay is of course featured on our program before. Without further ado, Bill, very warm welcome and thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Scott, thank you so much
2: and it's a pleasure to be here. I've listened to quite a number of your podcasts and you really put out a tremendous library of resources, which are a, a great help to all your listeners. So it's a privilege to be part of that journey.
0: And it's fantastic for me welcoming you on as well, Bill. It's um, a real passion of ours here at the Leaders' Council to really you know, project the authentic voices of leaders from all over the country and indeed all over the world. And uh, you're joining us from uh, from Lisbon today, aren't you, am I correct and say?
2: I am indeed. So I spend my time, I mean, spent 20 years in Asia, um before returning to Europe, uh, I'm located just north of Lisbon, and I spend my time between uh, Portugal, uh, the UK, and other parts of Europe. Uh, so um, you know, someone described me, of asked me if I've got a home. I said, well, yes, I have. It's kind of anywhere. Uh, and I think that's the, it typifies today's business, doesn't it? Mm. I, we, we need to be incredibly flexible uh, with where we work and how we work. And, of course, uh, the resources that you are, podcasting and video conferencing, uh, allow us to, to do that. Uh, you know, and I work with leaders um, all over the world. Leaders who are facing business and personal challenges as they transition through different phases of business growth. I help them navigate major challenges and help them come out on top. You know, I think I know that every day someone somewhere in a leadership role is saying this isn't working. Mm. We have to change. And and I know that change is possible and rescue is probable. And together we generally achieve a new direction and some success. But uh, as we both know, change is not for the faint-hearted. And that's why people like me add value every day. Um, we help people, uh, particularly leaders and CEOs, achieve great results and come out on top.
0: And you've got an extensive few years of experience doing exactly that, haven't you, Bill? Going into businesses and helping facilitate that sort of change and that real transformation that makes such a difference. And I have only, I guess I've only really at the uh, the beginning of this programme um, sort of given the succinct version of what it is that you've done throughout your career. So perhaps you could sort of tell us a little bit more about that and some of those things that you've helped them accomplish. Sure, Scott. I've
2: been really very, very fortunate and um, sometimes by, by dint of my own efforts and quite often by dint of circumstance. Uh, and I just happened to have found myself in the right place at the right time and had some amazing adventures and some amazing experiences and some experiences which um, I would have learned not to have, but I certainly uh, learned a lot from. Uh, the first half of my career, was in conventional corporate life Mm. and after business school i joined ford of europe uh, and then from Ford of europe i went to kpmg Uh, and that was a fascinating time because when i was with kpmg i was with a team that i did forensic accounting for banks and also managed the turnaround of client companies and uh, I found myself on four occasions um, having been part of the team that uh, were put in by a bank uh, to assess the viability of the company I found myself in an acting CEO position I, we, we found that yes it would uh, as we say rescue is probable uh, it's going to be difficult um some well okay in that case you best go and do it um, and that was an amazing experience. So I, I I actually found myself running an airline. And, now, bear in mind that I didn't have any airline experience at all. We were looking at a commuter airline uh, on behalf of the British government, mm. and it was hemorrhaging cash, and they couldn't figure out why. So we went and we had a look, and the reason why it was hemorrhaging cash was quite simple. Uh, the, the owners were just i taking cash out of the business. I'm almost taking it out in barrel loads. Um, and nobody actually quite spotted this. I, so we recommended that we close it down. And I remember, I, that I can recall the meeting vividly because it was um, in part of, it was in a British colony. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the British colony was actually overseen by a governor. All terribly, you know, colonial and uh, terribly British, um, and we were reporting to the government. And I said, "Well, we should actually remove the uh, the license, the, the license to operate." And uh, he said, "Well, if we do that, they've got to stop flying." I said, "Yes." I said, well, who's going to run the airline? And in a fit of inspiration, bra- bravado, or I don't know what, I said, "Well, I'll run it." Uh, now, actually, that's not quite. As uh, crazy as it sounds, because before that meeting, I'd already met with the four senior managers of the airline. I was the chief pilot, the chief engineer, uh, the chief uh, revenue uh, manager, and uh, the accountant. Mm. I said, look, we could be facing a situation where we close down. Um, can you guys run the airline? And they said, well, we, of course we can. We've been running it for the, you know, for the past number of the years. Um, if you can get the airline, we'll run it for you. And, and we did. We had a very successful period. And after that, I, I I was involved in an engineering company. I was involved in a food processing company. I was involved in a textile company. And all of these had the same similar characteristics uh, where cash had not been properly managed. Reporting was not thorough. Um, people were not realizing, particularly investors, and I include the banks in that, didn't actually realize what was going on. But they were all, at the end of the day, uh, cases and opportunities where we could rescue us business, turn it around, and sell it on, which we did. Um, on the back of that, I, on the back of my airline experience, I, I joined British Airways, and I remember the interview. They they had a, a commuter airline running in the north of Scotland. And the idea was, given my commuter airline experience, having run the other airline for a year, and they thought it would be a good idea if I joined them. And uh, I-, I went up to Scotland to run uh, the commuter airline business. I-, I joined them, but in fact, that particular appointment never came about instead. Um, I joined the, uh, the team that was responsible for the downsizing and completely re- realignment of the airline. Uh, when it way way back, this is in the 80s, uh, when the airline was taken down from 50,000, 52,000, 42,000, and then down to 38,000. And it, it, that's quite an interesting period because that you know, we we use the term downsizing. Well, I suppose it's it's an accurate description. I don't particularly like the term, but we we were in that downsizing period. We managed to completely restructure the airline, and we had one significant but short strike of London Heathrow ground staff in the whole of the period of about, I think the the downsizing program lasted for about three and a half years. Mm. And one might ask the question, well, how the hell did you do it? How did you manage to take close on 10,000 people out of an airline? Okay, this 10,000 people out of an airline worldwide. And the guy that led the program for the board was a very wily industrial relations uh, I I, I would call him an industrial relations guru he was head of operations Um, and he'd served his time in British uh, in the National Coal Board in British Steel he'd been around the uh, the the, the nationalised industries and he had a perspective on how staff and workers actually respond when they are threatened. And he said it is pointless, going head-to-head, threatening their livelihoods, and expecting them to cooperate. It doesn't work like that. What we need is a program where they accept the rationale that the airline has to be smaller. And we could, we, could develop, we, we did develop that. So we need to give them a way in which they can exit with dignity. Now, let's just go, let's have a little sidebar conversation, because mm. that term, that expression, to stay with me, to be able to exit with dignity. Mm. Now, if we look at around the, the, the world at the present time, the, the, there's a lot of large companies in the tech space who are downsizing, and I don't see a tremendous amount of, I don't see any hint of enablement, uh, enabling staff to exit with dignity. Mm. It doesn't, it seems to be, I, I own this company, or I am one of the wealthiest people in the world, and I can say what happens, and you're going, And oh, that's it, there's, you know, and, uh, there's various colors and shades of that, but that seems to be the attitude. So let's, let's just go back to the, the case in point. Um this gentleman, the gentleman's name was Howard Phelps. Regrettably, he's dead now. Um, he died some, some years ago after a very, very distinguished career. But Howard said, look, the way you look at this is, this is not a retrenchment program per se. It's a capital investment. Because if we pay out in various forms of settlement, Um, to allow people to leave the business with dignity, and then we remove that cost from the airline, then that produces a positive cash flow over the longer period. So you can actually look at it, uh, okay, so the retention program costs X, Mm. but you reduce the cost by Y. You look at that as... um, an investment case, and the investment case made a lot of sense, even though when we made offers to different groups of people, they were very, very generous. You, know, you would leave with number of months n number of months, uh, number of, months uh, of salary for y number of years of service, your pensions would be protected, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So that that was a a, a very fascinating time in my career to see how a very major restructuring of an organization could be achieved in a dignified way. Um, Then I I, I, I left. I I, I went off to Harvard Business School for a period. Um, And then when I returned to the UK, I took some time out. And... I ran a charity. I started a charity, founded found and ran a charity mm. which was focused on helping young people, um, 18 to 23, uh, and that was a truly amazing and humbling experience. Uh, we 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 brought in uh, young people from backgrounds which you know, sometimes. Really made our eyebrows rise. They, they they were they came from really challenging backgrounds, um, and somewhere along the line, opportunity had passed them by completely. And, and the mantra that we had is: when when you, when they joined us, we don't care where you've been, and we don't care what you've done, and we don't care what the backstory is. If you want to share it, that's fine. Uh, but we're looking forward, we're, we want to help you re, re, reorientate your life, change your life. And we, we put together a, a program of uh, about one year. Uh, people, people generally stay with us from about eight, eight months to a year. And it was a mixture of uh, outdoor work, outdoor projects, um, doing work for charities, um, Helping people, raising some money for themselves uh, through uh, to contribute back into the charity uh, and to help them with counselling and you know where could they fit going forward. Now if I ran it for five years and in the five years we put five hundred young people through and our statistics were that just short of ninety percent of the five hundred people that we put through. Went into work, further education, or some gainful activity, which was a fundamental change from where they were when they joined us, and uh, that was a a wonderful, wonderful, and humiliating in many ways uh, experience Mm. uh, to 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 just see where people came from and where they got to, and 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 it's my personal pride that you know even to this day, um, I've got a small number of the first year's group that I was very actively involved with uh, who still, are still in touch with it. Uh, you know, after all of these years. Um, I went back into corporate life after that and then I started my career as an entrepreneur. That was my uh, learning period on how to... Uh, it, it was like my period where I created the Catalogue of the States, mm. which, a catalogue which... Uh, was very extensive, um, and when I look back, quite ridiculous, uh, because I, I made all the fundamental mistakes. You know, you, you, I, I had three businesses, three businesses in succession, um, and I came out at the end. I didn't make any money. I, I, I didn't lose a lot. But I didn't make a lot either. Um, and it, I, I did all the classics. You know, I wrote a business plan for a. Uh, you know, a 100-page business plan um, for a business that existed in my mind only. It didn't exist in real life and never did. It was completely divorced from reality. And I thought selling was I kind of directing. Um, I so sales staff to go out and meet the customer and go and sell. Well, I wasn't prepared to get off my butt and go and do the same. Uh, So I I wasn't talking to customers. Um, I was moderately aware of cash flow, but not aware of cash flow, I should be. And I had one occasion where I had had a product which I thought was the best thing since sliced bread. Um, It was the answer to everybody's need. Uh, Unfortunately, it wasn't. I thought that, but nobody else did. Uh, So (laughs) this was quite a fascinating period. Um, And and, and then, by accident, I took another route completely. You know, this is the Alice in Wonderland uh, tale. You you come to a crossroads. And uh, I was at a crossroads then. It's almost like I met the Cheshire Cat. (laughs) And I asked the Cheshire Cat, you know, which way should I go? And the cat said to me, well, it doesn't matter, Bill, you know, because you're not sure where you want to get to. Um, so it doesn't matter which road you take. And I, I've always had a, a, a fascination with technology. And in fact, going back to the British Airways period, I, I, I run a very large department, operations department in, in BA and uh, invested a tremendous amount of money in revamping uh, operational systems and creating operational systems where they didn't exist before. So I fully understood the the benefit of levering technology for business improvement. And uh, a friend of mine was involved in a uh, tech company implementing uh, SAP. This was the back end of the 90s, uh, you know, rather around the, of the 90s, early 2000s and SAP was in Vogue, so it was Oracle and BOM and uh, big enterprise systems like that. Mm. And he said, look, you, you've had experience of uh, lots of different aspects of business. We want somebody who can come in. We're just a load of techies. We want somebody to come in who can help us build a, a program management practice, a transformation practice. Uh, which was actually a bit fascinating challenge, um, which I did, and I did with great success. Um, I, we built the practice in the UK, and then um, I took it to the US. Uh, we opened an office in the US. and uh, um, Three other guys who were with me, four, 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 four guys who were with me. We built a consulting practice in the US, which after two years had 50 consultants. Uh, and a very, very good revenue stream We were profitable almost from day one. Um, which actually, I mentioned, as well in passing, um, I went with with another four people. Uh, That actually needs significant amplification. In that case, in the case of the charity, in case of British Airways, in case of the airline that I ran, all of those successes were achieved not by me. They were achieved by the teams that I, were able, I was able to assemble. Mm. And I was fortunate that I was able to assemble some um, a teams of amazing people. Who knew far more than I did? Far, far more than I did. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the the idea to surround yourself with good people mm. is vitally vitally true. You know, if if you have a team of people, if in they're individual specialists, they are not significantly better than you can ever be, then you shouldn't have employed them.
0: Quite straightforward isn't it that even when you're starting out and even when you're established in a business sense you should surround yourself with people who are better than you as you say and can complement the work that you're doing with the the skill sets that you might not necessarily be good at and I suppose what's also quite important no matter what the life cycle of the business are concerned is as well is to make sure that whoever you bring on board also aligns with the culture that you're trying to implement so you can't overstate just how important that is can you?
1: No,
2: you can't. Um, and let me just fast forward and uh, just uh, we'll, we'll, we went from America mm. and then, then I'll return to culture because where I'm going next is really vitally important in terms of cultural, cultural immersion.
1: Mm. So
2: I went from the U.S. to Asia and uh, I took over an ailing uh, part of our business that was based out of Singapore and Malaysia uh, and turned that around, which was good. Uh, that was, again, as a result of a terrific team that I had working with them. Uh, but it was um, culturally very, very challenging, um, a very, very different mindset. Uh, and the thing was, it wasn't just a singular mindset, because I was based in Singapore, and I headquartered in Singapore, but we were doing work in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, um Singapore, and uh, we did a little bit of work in Taiwan, and also I started making inroads into China. Now all of those countries are uh, in, from, from the outside outside uh, observer, there, there, it's Asia, isn't it? But no, it isn't, it, it isn't Asia. Uh, it's fundamentally different. There, all of the countries have their own cultural um, uh, values, their own cultural norms. Mm. Uh, and they're not necessarily transferable. There might be some similarities, but they're always transferable. Um, and there is a challenge when you are a business that is in a Western economy with the variety of cultures that exist in, a, in the, the broad Western economy. And I hear, I hear I'm talking about Europe, uh, the UK, North America. Um, and you think that your mindset is transferable. But then you find yourself in Asia, or you find yourself in one of the Asian countries. Mm. in the challenge of language for a second. Um the cultural differences and the way in which people respond, they think, their aspirations, their objectives can be fundamentally different to yours. The way that they react to you is why, a way which you are not may not be familiar with. Um and I and I I I I, I I was somewhat um, surprised, not a lot, because I, I traveled extensively uh, during the period of time when I worked uh, in the airline industry and I spent time in different parts of the world. Uh, but it was uh, quite a quite a baptism of fire, and particularly China. Mm. Because after, uh, after we turned this company around, um, I left that particular organization. I sent my own consulting business out of Singapore and Shenzhen. Um, and I'm now working in China. And I'm working in China quite extensively. Uh, and the rules are different. The rules are very, very different. The rules are different in Asia. But when you land in Singapore, Singapore is pretty well regulated. Uh, and they say about Singapore that Singapore is Asia for beginners. Uh, which indeed it is. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's culturally Asian. It's culturally a melting pot of uh, different parts of Asia, but it's got a, a regulatory system uh, which is was inherited. It was adopted. It was adapted, and then it was kind of in a way improved for that locale. Uh, you know, from from the British. Um, but then you step outside Singapore, you step outside of this country, which is Asia for beginners, you go to uh, Malaysia, you go to Thailand, or you go to Indonesia, you go to China, and uh, you know, now you're, re- you're really in Asia. And, and that, that was that was really, really, both a wonderful experience, but a challenging experience. Because things didn't happen in the way you expected them to. Mm. And, and things which... You expect, people said they would do something and you expected them to do, but it was never done. Um, you know, the, 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 we could spend the whole afternoon talking about this, you know, because there's, you know, so, some of the stories uh, uh, we, you would raise eyebrows, to say the least, where, you know, commitments are made and uh, but never, never delivered, uh, or promises around um, the development of product is... Uh, written down on paper it's written in contracts but then the product never actually meets the specification that you thought you'd actually agreed to um because the supplier didn't really want to spend the money that they should have spent um, uh, and so it goes on and so it goes on um, and it was a again it was a wonderful period uh, and it became a very very profitable period because um, my consulting uh, practice uh, did some amazingly good work for companies surprisingly um, in Asia but not for Asian companies uh, because we were doing work for international companies uh, and then we took on a very big $40 billion transformation program in Abu Dhabi Uh, which we delivered uh, spectacularly well. I'm going to say it because I'm going to bang the drum on this, because if I don't, nobody else will. Mm -hmm. Um, We delivered it spectacularly well. It was a massive transformation program. It was the implementation of uh, a full Oracle ERP suite in um, the largest, aircraft maintenance company in the world, privately owned aircraft company in the world. Uh, We built two new data centers. Uh, We built a document management uh, system from scratch in a regulated environment. Um, And all this was achieved in two years. Uh, Whereas um, Oracle told us that other, other clients who were taking the same platform were estimating they would take three to four years to implement and we did it too. Now, again, I'm using the term we very, very advisably here because Mm -hmm. the condition that I, my condition that we are taking the job on was that I had a free reign in who I who I engaged, who I used, who came on board as the, top raft of team leaders, mm. and I was allowed to do that. And I got the best team in the whole world. They had an amazing team of people, and they did it. They did it. And uh, I think one of the things which allowed us to achieve such an outstanding performance was the ability to have a vision, be able to communicate that vision, to be able to get people around in a tight coalition that supported that vision, and then was able to take that vision and the outcomes into the organization in a way that people understood and were also prepared to buy in. And that's a fundamental 20 transformation program. And I remember, in the in the graphic that we used to describe our journey that we were embarking on, I put, a, I put up a picture of a car. And it was a 1953 Ford Popular car. UK car, which... Any, any listener of any um, elder years who are listening would know what it is a four-popular. But it was a post-war car. And then I said, This is what we have today to manage this multi-million dollar business. And it's broken. This is what we're going to have. And the image I put up next was the latest, brightest, shiniest, fastest, most expensive BMW. And immediately, people got it. Mm. And and that was the image. that, that, That was the image that stuck. That stuck um around the program and around the company and it was a it was a bit of a it was kind of a bit of a, it, was, a, it was a talking point but it was a bit of a joke because you know you walk down the corridor and somebody come up say hey, Bill Bill um has it been delivered yet has what been delivered the BMW <laughs> um, oh, no but it's on its way you know it, it's due next February and um so, you know, then again, it was about uh, having the right team, having a vision, having the ability to gather people around that vision, to communicate it, and then to take it through the organization to motivate people, and a lot of hard work. Uh, but it was a magnificent, a magnificent project. And then I uh, repeated the process in terms of some elements. Because I came back to Singapore, and that my my, my consulting business actually, I think I decided to come out on a high. Mm. Um, And I took some time out, and I I had a yacht in Singapore, uh, which I was all terribly grand. Um, It was, in a way, uh, because I I was living on a yacht in uh, Sentosa in Singapore. Uh, But I couldn't find a, a a team that could maintain it, we mm. were in very short supply. So I created my own maintenance company, um, Marine Services Company. And that, that, again, it was a case of finding a small group of people who understood what I wanted to do, who had the technical ability, and, and the networks and the contacts, and we, we, we built a business for nothing. Uh, and it was, it was again that was very successful I sold it on after two years and uh, then went back to tech and uh,
1: I and in the tech business I made
2: I, I, I it, it was incredibly visionary because it was before Zoom But we were ruling Zoom. Because I could see the future of video conferencing at a consumer level uh, rather than at the big Cisco, um, what was it, Polycom? 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 Yeah, Cisco, Polycom, Mm. big expensive systems that existed in those days. Um, And I I thought that must be replaced, and it's going to be replaced by something which is at a consumer level. And I discovered it. It was being built by a a little company in New Jersey, a company called Video, V-I-D-Y-O. And they'd broken the mold. They were putting video onto laptops and uh, onto desktops. And I licensed it, and we started building it. And then Google announced web real-time communication Uh, very quietly, uh they 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 bought a company uh in two thousand and nine or two thousand and ten. The company is they, they 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 the company had eight people and they were developing the idea that you could put video conferencing into a browser. And yeah, the the simple way to explain this is you know, when you and I open our laptop, we're looking at a browser. What we're looking at, looking at is the visual manifestation of lines of code. And th- these guys had this idea that if we could put into those lines of code um, a codec, a video codec, and whatever other bits and pieces that are needed, actually in the, br- in the browser code, we could actually make the browser a piece of software that could do video conferencing. Now, bear in mind, we're we're now talking something about 12 years ago. This was really quite bleeding edge. Mm. And uh, Google bought this little company. Then they put the project out to all open source. And then in 2012, in May, um, there was a guy in Google. His name was Justin, and I can't remember his family name. But he was at a conference of Google Geeks, and he made a presentation saying that we have this idea that we can uh, put video into browsers, and we're calling it Web Real-Time Communication, WebRTC. And I saw that, and I thought, holy shoot, if that is true, then the money and the effort and the time that we invested in building out our operation using the New Jersey technology would become superseded Mm -hmm. by WebRTC. So we built a WebRTC equivalent, and uh, we launched it in 2013 um, in Atlanta. And we did the first intercontinental live, real-time web conference from participants from Singapore, Australia, um, uh, the U.S. and the U.K., mm. on stage in Atlanta live, and it worked. Uh, sorry, and Nairobi. Well, the Nairobi was there. And Nairobi had come in over satellite as well. So this was a massive, massive breakthrough. It's the first commercial demonstration on um, WebRTC, uh, outside Google. And um, then we took it to IBM Connect, uh, which was held the same year as I think it was held, held in Orlando. And we were nominated as one of the top three companies to watch. Uh, so we were on a roll, and unfortunately, I had what I described as a hospitalisation event. Um, I was, I woke up one day paralysed. Um, mm. I damaged my spine. Uh, and previously I had been lifted luggage. And I didn't realise that I'd actually, uh, caused some spinal damage and I couldn't move. And it took me out of the business for many months. And when I got back, the interesting thing was that this is a fundamentally changed. Mm. Changed direction. I changed staffing,
1: I changed management, and the business which
2: I and the other key founder that was in there, one of the sales guys, had envisioned, had disappeared. And um, it was very sad. But it was a very salutary lesson because <laughs> I had a co founder. And this, this is actually an interesting situation when you are an early stage company and you're looking for funds. And if, you know, you, the lessons that you learn are that you should get smart money, not any money.
1: Mm.
2: And i failed that test because I'd accepted any money. Because my my co-founder who was financing the business with me didn't have a background in tech, but thought it was a nice, sexy project. Thought it was a nice, sexy project, so he would get involved and because he didn't understand the tech, he allowed some uh, people in the organization who had widely different and uh, actually inappropriate views to um, influence him, to redirect the business. That's what, that's what happened. Mm. Um, so anyway, that, it, 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 life moves on. And um, and uh, I I left the company. I left the organisation. Um, I did one or two other things for a period of time, and then um, I, uh, I I started to write. I, I wrote my first book in 2017. And that was a story about an entrepreneur, surprisingly. (laughs) Um, It's called Midas and 1000 Cows. You can find it on Amazon. And it's got some terrific reviews. Um, I I, I don't think I can actually um, retire from the royalties. Uh, It's not exactly been a volume seller. But the neat thing about it is that everybody that has bought it and everybody that's read it has gone, this is fabulous. Every entrepreneur should read this. There's so much, there's so many lessons in here. Mm. You know, Midas has had an amazing journey. You know, he's confronted all kinds of things at a personal level and at a business level. And uh, it's just oozing with lessons for entrepreneurs. So there we go Midas and 1000 Cows. And, uh, you know, that, that was the start of my. My my career as an author. Mm. Um, there's, there's, I've done uh, two other books uh, since, um, but not quite in the same vein, because uh, Midas is kind of a novel, uh, but it's a novel that is grounded in, re- in the real world and real-world experience. And then there's another couple of books. One on the... It, it, it's, Both short, but one is the 120 questions that VCs will ask if you're going to raise money. And basically those 120 questions will provide anyone with um, the architecture of their investment case and and, and learn what to anticipate when they go outside the funds. Mm. And then the other book was uh, 100 Mistakes of a Startup CEO. And of course, I've got a wry smile here because um, as I wrote the book and, and assembled, did the research and assembled some of the information, I I, I put it together. I'm, I'm writing, I'm reading, and go, hmm, I remember that. Yeah, that's definitely something. That is definitely a mistake to start up CEOs. Like. I remember that. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it, that one, both of these two books are actually available for me, from my website. Um, there, there, uh, anybody that contacts me via my website, which is being rebranded now, I, which was the, the, the final part of the story actually, um, mm. which uh, a, with a lot of encouragement uh, from some very good friends and people that know me and know what I can do, um, and suggest that I did a kind of a rebranding and uh, uh, a realignment of my own career, um, and they so, said, look. You should be you should be advising other people going through the growth journey uh, and, and the CEOs that are you know they're facing challenges. So you know today I'm as I said at the the introduction I, I work with CEOs in particular and leaders uh, who are going through the various challenges that uh, business present. You know there can be personal challenges. You know like why why am I doing it? Why am I doing this? Why am I in this business? Is, and you know, what is my personal why? And, is, and what is the corporate why? Are they compatible? Uh, you know, what's my objective? And you know, will what I'm doing today take me to my personal goals and my family goals? And you know, and that's vitally important because you can have some quite amazing. You think they're amazing, anyway. Um, amazing business goals. Mm. A lot of people, and hopefully your investors think they're amazing as well. But then you you have to ask yourself the question is, um, do these business goals actually align with my family goals and my personal goals in the near term, medium term, and longer term? Or am I going to wake up one day and find that I've Pursue the business goal at the expense of my family, or my family goal, and maybe in extremes you wake up and then you find that you have not a family, and that's tragic. Mm. So there's some very fundamental questions, you know. And then you know, uh, and when you start off, you know, you're a CEO and you've got and you're chasing your business. At some point in time, you have to figure out how you develop and transition. Uh, and optimize your role as a founder and CEO, and you become a growth CEO, and you become a mature business CEO. Um, well, and, and maybe I should bring a new CEO in, if so, when? I, went, I was having this conversation with a client two weeks ago, a uh, very, very successful founder CEO, um, but he's he still finds himself working in the business instead of on it, Mm. Uh, on the business. He still finds himself um, working excessive hours. I'd say they are successful. Uh, But he said, I'm not enjoying it anymore. Because it was fun when I was starting the business and building and growing and teaching. It's not fun anymore. Because it's not what I want to do. And you know, it, we, 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 we he'd already arrived at the conclusion, um, but he, he probably he, he wanted to sound it, sound me out on it. Uh, he wanted to bounce it off me. And you know, he said, "I think I need to bring a new CEO in." Well, he, he'd answered his own question, and um, you know, he he, he 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 needed to move from being a CEO in the business to a CEO working on the business, and then hand over to a, 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 a new CEO, who would uh, grow and expand. Um, and at the same time, he needed to address questions of his board. He he, mm. he started up this business and he uh, assembled a board, which might have been appropriate at the outset. Um, but I would call them a friendly board and there were people who he thought would contribute to helping him think through what he wanted to do. He uh, would be a co-founder himself, um, I, a couple of other people that he knew, and he "You say, know, will, will you come and join my board? And he was okay at the beginning, but the board was rather not one that was suitable for a growth business or going forward. And you, 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 know, I think this is one of the challenges that founder CEOs Um, is a realisation that um, somebody told me I needed boards, I created a board of directors. Um, But then it wakes up and says, well, actually, this board of directors is not adding any value. In fact, it's actually detracting from value because there's all kinds of political manoeuvring inside the board and um, people are not contributing but they want a reward. And uh, they find themselves, I mean, to undo decisions which they took in good faith, you know, maybe some years before. Uh, and I've, I've come across that on several occasions where we've had to, where I've been working with a CEO, and we've had to quietly step back and go, well, look, um, this board is not supporting you. It's actually more of a hindrance than it's actually of a help. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have to keep your shareholders happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the shareholders happy. Uh, Just the shareholders are they represented on the board? And is are they their representative? i uh, contributing and, uh, and suitable for the future. Uh, so you know, you 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 you've got this balancing act of um, aligning shareholders' interests and now stakeholder interests, uh, and now even more so with ESG a uh, wider interest, uh, how do you balance those with the needs of today and tomorrow? And th- this is the kind of work I do with CEOs that I do with um, clients who are board board members uh, and, you know, in, in my role as a chair. Uh, I'm, I'm just in negotiation with the company now to take over the chair position uh, of a uh, company that's transiting, trans- trans- transiting from uh, being a, a very exciting uh early stage company uh startup what well, companies startup early stage uh, into quite a rapidly growing company um, and we 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 have to look and say, Well, look what's the board composition what's the cap table look like uh because the cap table was kind of appropriate in the beginning, but you know some mistakes were made, so we have to kind of unravel those. Mm. Um, and you know, very soon we we're gonna to have to go out and raise funds. Uh, so one of the interesting things in raising funds is that I'm i was going to say I'm amazed, but I'm not—I'm not really amazed because I've been there myself before in my in my various uh, iterations of being a founder. Mm-hmm. Um, and most very few founders understand the funding journey. Mm. Very few understand how a VC business operates or understand what an angel investor is looking for. Because they're so absorbed with the the magnitude of the opportunity which they see for their own business, whether it's real or imagined, is a separate point. And, and, and they, they're they oblivious to the needs of the business. When, <clears throat> excuse me, when that business is either an angel, an angel investor or it's a, a VC, or it's a private equity company, um, I, I kind of look at it this way, that if you go to have a conversation with a founder or a CEO of an early stage company and say, tell me about your customer. Mm. Hopefully, not, not, not in every case, but hopefully, they will be able to tell you about your customer, their customer, in a lot of detail. Almost by due time. Um, and they'll really have their Finger on the button and then they' want to go out and get finance but they haven't actually gone through the thought process which says I am a customer potential customer of an angel investor or a venture capital firm
1: mm.
2: so the, the angel investor the venture venture capital firm, company have certain needs certain requirements of the people that they give money to and they don't know what those needs and that the requirements are they think because i think i've got an amazing business they will think so too and therefore they'll give me money and i think that it's incumbent i don't think i know it's incumbent on the the founder, CEO, or the early-stage company, even the later stage company that's going out and looking for capital, investment capital, to really understand what the investor is looking for. What do they want? What do they need? You know, the, the venture capital model is, if you research it, it's very well-articulated. The venture capital uh, model is that a venture capital firm takes in uh significant sources of money from private investors or institutional investors on the promise that they will return back to those uh, people uh, above average returns. So therefore, they've now got a pot of money, which they now have to deploy in a way that will give above average returns to their investors uh, or their, their, their limited parts um so they're going to go out into the marketplace and look for companies that will give stellar returns they're not interested in companies that might give average returns uh they're not interested in the slow and steady because the slow and steady doesn't fit the vc model they're looking for the next Airbnb, they're looking for the next Facebook. They're looking for the next um, massive growth company that's going to become a unicorn in next to no time, mm. because they need those companies to provide those stellar returns. Because their invest, that their, their placement of investments is a very high risk business. You know, they, they, they they might put out. Investments into fifty companies, and out of the fifty companies one becomes a superstar, five make pretty decent returns, another twenty or so make average returns, and the rest are all are all lemons. You know, they don't make anything. And, and when you when you kind of average that out, you think, well. It, 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 it's you've it's it ended up with quite quite a not not terribly spectacular return you've may you you've met the above average but you know if, if, if all of your companies have been unicorns then wow you would you would be really spectacular but of course all the company all the companies they chose never became unicorns and, and, and sometimes and I, I've spoken to the people that I know well in the VC world. Um, about this and I always think how well do you do, do you do how well do you do your due diligence mm. and some of them go well not as well as we should sometimes and that's why you know one of the um, things that I do and also CX does, the company that I'm involved with um, is we help BCs and investors do due diligence, but due diligence is being done not by accountants and number crunchers, but they're being done by people who have actually run businesses mm. and who go in. And, you know, and, and, and you know yourself, Scott, is that you sometimes there's some. you go into a business and the numbers you look at the numbers and you think. I mean, think that's, that's more than reason, you know, they can achieve that. And and they say all the right things, but it doesn't pass the SNP test. Mm. You know, there's something, there's a gut feel about this. It doesn't appear, it doesn't feel right, does it? You know, you, you, you're there, you're talking to this company that the VC or the H wants to invest in, or the bank wants to invest in, and you know, I wouldn't put money in this. Don't ask me why. I don't know. There's something. There's something that's not right here. And you know, this takes me all the way back to the beginning of our story uh, when I was involved with KPMG and I was in their um, forensic accounting department. Mm. And we were looking at turnarounds, and I was, I was I was ending up as a CEO of companies that required rescue, and you know, uh, change change was necessary, and rescue was probable. And, new alignment was achieved, if we, if we, if we could make it. Mm. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot of these, um, a lot of BCs need to have kind of a supplement to their uh, their, resources, their resource base, where they're able to point at somebody like me and say, go oh, have a chat with these guys. Um, we think it's a great case. Or we think it could be a great case, or we think it may be a great case. But that's what we think. And uh, quite often we unheard things which uh, um, you mentioned, uh, Kate cooper Fay from CXC, my mm-hmm. colleague, uh, and she often terms it using the term: uh, we discover the uncommon truth. You know, that we, we it's something which is. Um,
1: hidden in full sight. Well, that brings
2: us up to today. So I've rebranded. Uh, my, my new business is majorturnaround.com. Um, I'm working with CEOs, and uh, particularly growth CEOs, people that CEOs going through transition, uh, whether it's personal transition, whether it's business transition, Um, and usually quite significantly sized companies, um, and some early-stage companies as well. And I'm just about to write another book. And I'm enjoying my life in Portugal and commuting between Portugal and the UK and in the New Year to the US as well. I'm just starting a big campaign. to
1: build our client base in the US.
0: So there's some fantastic ambitions, let's say, on the uh, the horizon for yourself, Bill. And it's been fantastic welcoming you onto the uh, the show to talk about your journey and how some of the lessons from that are so so very relevant to the CEOs of today as well we've talked about the importance of the why the importance of understanding the funding journey and also the challenges around scaling up too quickly and what you need to be aware of on that side of things and also the culture clashes that can come about as a, as a result of that and uh, you've experienced it you know you sort of exited the business uh, from sort of that period of ill health that you had and because there was sort of that little mismatch there the business completely changed in your absence. And these are all key lessons and real food for thought for anybody that may be tuning into this podcast today. And just for any listeners as well, I would certainly urge you to go and uh, check out uh, Bill's uh, rebranded website, majorturnaround.com. Uh, I think you said it was, Bill. And also the books well, that he's right. written as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, the minus from
2: 1000 Carrels are available on Amazon. If you go on majorturnaround.com um, and you can contact me through there or you can contact me at bill.lewis at majorturnaround.com uh, and ask me for copies of for the 120 questions that a VC will ask or 100 mistakes of a founder, of a founder CEO um, and any of the other publications. I've got a wonderful publication on uh, a, a business canvas, which is a, str- a piece of strategic work which helps you think through how uh, to structure a business um, in a way that you can build an unassailable pitch for any investor or an unassailable case for the new direction of your business. So, Scott, I, I, I really appreciate um, you uh, inviting me and giving the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, and I hope that um, our listeners... I found it interesting, and they got some value from it. And uh, if anyone, any of them would like to reach out and contact me, they can do it directly or through yourself.
0: Absolutely right. And um, I, I would like to reiterate what Bill said there. I do hope that everybody thoroughly did enjoy hearing from him. And um, if you did want to uh, to reach out via ourselves, the Leaders' Council, um, you're able to do that via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. Anything, of course, directed uh, to Bill will pass on to, uh, on to him. And if you have been listening in and you were a business leader yourself and you feel you have your own perspective on this or any other topical matter or issue that may be relevant to bring to the discussion table, you would you can apply to be on the program yourselves just to remind you and come and sit down with me on the show and your port of call for that would be leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply and uh, just for yourself Bill with um, everything that's on the horizon for you including the release of your new book as well um, I think it would be fantastic to maybe catch up in future and even have you back on the show just to see how things are going and maybe talk about some of the lessons that one can find in uh, that piece of work too.
2: It, was, Scott, it will be a pleasure. Yeah. And next time round, I can t- tell you about a, another at which we've we got uh, in the stocks uh, where we should be releasing our MPV in January, I think. But that was a completely different story and for another
0: time. Absolutely right. And I'm sure we'll certainly have another time to go through that. And uh, thanks again, Bill, uh, for taking the time to join us today. It's been so, My so pleasure. very enlightening for myself as well as the other listeners. And by all means, do take care. And I'm looking forward to speaking in the future.
2: Thank you very much indeed,
0: Scott. And to all of our listeners, as usual, I've been your host, Scott Challoner, on today's episode of the Leaders' Council podcast. And until next time, when we'll be back with a whole new perspective on leadership, please do take care all and goodbye.